Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in September 2022. This episode is about a key argument for the existence of God, namely the ontological argument or arguments. So we'll be thinking about what it is to argue for the existence of God and various versions of the ontological argument and problems with them. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. Uh, we have a great cast list uh, for this episode. Is it the greatest one we can conceive? Um, so joining me in this episode, we've got Michael Platt, who teaches at Harvey Grammar School in Folkestone. Hi, Michael. Hi, good to be here. And if I'm on it, I'm going to say no, probably not. <laughs> uh, and we've got Paul Moore Bridger from King Edward School in Birmingham. Hi, Paul. Hi. Um, I have to echo Michael's thoughts there. Um, full of modesty. <laughs> You guys, you guys are doing yourself down, honestly. Uh, and we've got Ben Jones from King Edward Sixth College in Stourbridge. Hi, Ben. Hi, uh, good to be back. And I could be taller. <laughs> okay, great to have all three of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about the ontological argument or arguments for the existence of God. Um, this topic appears all over the place in uh, specifications. It's on the AQA A-level philosophy spec. I think it's on the Register Study Spec as well. It's on the IB and it's on the OCR, Edexcel, RS specifications. It's on other Religious Studies specifications. The only one it's not explicitly mentioned on, I think, is Scottish Hires. But Descartes does offer an ontological argument in the meditations, as we're going to hear later on. Um, so it's worth knowing about, even if you're not focusing on that topic from the book. Okay, so let's start with some basic points about the ontological argument. Uh, the point of it is, of course, to argue that God exists. So what are the general contours of the argument and why is it different from other sorts of arguments for the existence of God? Ben, do you want to start things off for us, please? Yeah, the the big thing about the ontological argument, which probably makes it stand out against all of the other arguments or the, the kinds of argument arguments that probably a lot of people who don't study philosophy would put forward for the existence of God or their own belief in God is that it is for us a completely kind of a priori deductive argument for the existence of God, that it doesn't begin with any sort of observation. It doesn't begin with kind of our understanding of the world or our interactions with other people, like the, the moral argument or the teleological argument or the cosmological argument. It just begins with the very concept or idea of God and trying to understand conceptually what's kind of necessitated within any conception of God. Obviously, that's controversial, but the idea being that we've kind of agreed on the concept of God and what that must entail. And the idea being that then just from that concept of God that you've got, you can start to just think about it purely rationally. You can use deduction to kind of unpack what's entailed within that concept so ideas like perfection or omnipotence, omnibenevolence, whatever it might be, you think about these things and gradually you start to uncover the fact that it must be the case that God exists just from that concept itself. So the, by unpacking the concept, you actually don't just have a reason to believe that God exists, like the world you know, appears to be ordered, so that gives us a reason to believe that God designed it but that you've actually got um, a deductive proof that God must exist, that the that if everything that you've said about God 
conceptually is true, then the conclusion, therefore, God exists must follow. Um, and to deny God's existence, to agree with the premises, which should be kind of analytically true or a priori true, then um, to deny the conclusion would actually be um, inconsistent. It would actually be a logical contradiction of some form. Okay, great. Thanks, Ben. That's really helpful to set the scene. Um, so the big idea is the ontological argument of uh, for the existence of God is we've got a concept of God and what we're doing is just unpacking it in this a priori way, as Ben mentioned. Okay, so um, a number of big figures loom large in the history of philosophy with this argument. So I was reading something um, just to prepare for this, and, and someone says, basically, all the big figures of Western philosophy have, have had a crack at one time or another about the ontological argument. So uh, a lot of people just start, though, with St Anselm, who, of course, was Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, near where I am at the moment, uh, though there's a few years between us. So shall we start with St Anselm's formulation? Um, Paul, Michael, who wants to, to start us off with this? I, I don't mind diving in on that. So uh, just very interesting. When I've, whenever I introduce this, just referring back to what Ben was saying, I always enjoy getting a bit of a sort of frisson of tension in the room by standing up and saying, look, I'm just going to prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that there definitely is a God. And if you wish to uh, deny this, you're going to have to enter into something as foolish as denying that a triangle has has three internal angles adding up to 180 degrees. It's got that kind of wow fact that I did try and um, like to bring out for the students because just as you said, you know, every major figure's had a crack at it. It's got a sort of bewitchment to it um, that you can really sort of, when you grasp it, you sort of see it a bit like when you grasp Pythagoras' theorem or something and you just think, oh yeah, that's true. And then you start, then you unpack it a little bit more and look at some criticism and maybe change your mind. But there's always that that idea that because it's a, an a priori deductive argument, if it's right, if it's valid, it's certainly true that God exists. And I think when Anselm is writing Proslogion and reflecting on just that word God, because he begins uh, with a definition of God for us, which is God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived or yeah, thought of. And by greater there, obviously we think about a kind of maximal uh, value, maximal properties, absolutely whatever there is that could be good, God is it. God is the the sum of all perfections. And he, he reflects on that idea. And he reflects on it, obviously, as, as you said, Archbishop of Canterbury, a, a believer. But he also notices um, that even somebody who isn't coming from his, his standpoint, such as the, um, the fool in Psalm 14, who hath said in his heart, there is no God. Even as he's saying that, in his mind, he understands what it is that he is saying. He's got a, a conception or an understanding of that thing, God, that he says in, isn't in fact there. So it exists in his understanding. But then Anselm points out, well, if you think about this, if that than which nothing greater can be conceived exists only in the understanding, well, actually, that wouldn't be quite as perfect or as great as if it existed in reality as well. So if you, if you reflect on that thought, it seems like the greatest conceivable being must actually exist in reality as well as merely in the understanding. And to think, you know, to sort of to, to say that, that that being doesn't exist in reality, 
involves yourself into in a contradiction because you've just said you've realized that it must exist otherwise it would be less if you're conceiving of a being than which nothing greater can be conceived that only exists in your understanding then you're not thinking of the, of the most the greatest conceivable being that you can think of which of course is god therefore god must exist because god is the most is the greatest conceivable being at which point if you sort of grasp that you think oh ah if that's what god means then god must exist at which point anselm's done his work for now at least anyway right well we can shut up shop then we can just end the podcast there because that's that's it you've done the job you've proved god exists paul so I was going to say I should have added in there that it's a kind of um, that great. It's, it's a kind of existence, re- really existing is a gr- sort of greatness bearing property. Yeah, so yeah, just to be really clarified, clarify that point. Uh, great, but that is not the end of the story, of course, as we all as we all know. Shall we? Um, shall we switch to thinking about criticisms then, and then come back to what Anselm can also say. Um, Michael, do you want to think about desert islands? Uh, yes, I do. I'd like to be on one as well. So uh, the, the probably the most famous criticism, and I suppose we will criticise the criticism later, but um, for some, this is kind of the, the the one that put the nail in the coffin for Anselm's argument came from a, a, a monk called Gornilo, who basically said if you swap God out with something else, such as an island, and you say there is an island that exists somewhere that is greater than any other island you can possibly conceive, it would be better for that island to exist in reality than just to exist in the mind. Therefore, that island must exist. So obviously, we wouldn't accept that as a, a proof for a perfect island anywhere. Uh, so we shouldn't accept Anselm's proof for the existence of God on, on the same basis. Great. Short and succinct, and that's that's pretty much it, right? <laughs> so there's, there's, there's obviously something gone wrong with Anselm's argument. There's a kind of weird inference going on because... Otherwise, it looks as if we can prove not just that the perfect island exists, but that the perfect anything and everything can exist, such as the perfect podcast, the perfect philosopher, and so on and so forth. So um, shall we go back then to Anselm and, and Proslogin? Because what Paul gave us was a kind of good summary of chapter two. But there's also some material in chapter three. So Gornilo is writing afterwards, but there's some interesting material in chapter three that, that people always point to that thinks gives Anselm a bit of a of a response back to the monk. So does someone want to talk us through chapter three? Paul, back to you. Yeah, I'd um, just like to say, so Gornilo quite amusingly writes on, on behalf of the fool, doesn't he? Which is yes, he um, obviously Anselm's referred to the fool um, in his, his writing. And so this is on behalf of the fool. Yes, yeah, so what Gornilo seems to have done is put that nail in the coffin. But if you look at Proslogion 3, there's a bit of a change of emphasis in a way, because what we've got in Proslogion 2 is just the proof that God exists. But then in Proslogion 3, we get this kind of gloss on kind of how God exists. And if you're trying to think about a being than which nothing greater can be conceived, you might think to yourself, well, okay, so maybe that exists. But what if it could cease to exist, you know, maybe go out of existence? Well, when did that being come into existence? And you might think to yourself, well, actually, the most perfect being wouldn't be able to go out of existence. There's no possibility that God could not, not exist. 
And there should be the thought that God came into existence, that is to say, existed within time, again, seems to be a kind of a limitation or a lack of a perfection. So if you think about it, says um, says Anselm, in fact, that the most perfect conceivable being must exist, that is to say, can't not exist. And we might want to use a bit of sort of jargon that, that um, Anselm doesn't use, but he says that it we could say it has to have the property of necessary existence. So the possibility of God's non-existence is not a possibility. To think of God as non-existent would be to contradict oneself and be maybe as you know sort of absurd as square circles and all the rest of it. So we get this idea, which is a, an interesting response to Gornilo, because clearly islands are not the kinds of things uh, that might have that that property. And so we can say, well, actually. Okay, so things like islands just maybe happen to exist, but things like God, well, there's only one thing like God that has the property of having to exist. And that's going to later be exploited by uh, Norman Malcolm, as we'll get on to discuss. Great. Uh, thanks very much. So, yeah, so the, the big shift here is from happening to exist, like all of us, and perhaps like islands, to having to exist, so necessary existence. And that, 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 that phrase, necessary existence, looms large when people are thinking about the ontological argument. Great. So, Michael, why don't you come back in? Um, can I ask a question? Because you might be able to educate me here. <clears throat> is, is proslogian 3 needed? So, like, if you go, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, is he not already in a category that's excluding islands anyway? Because it is that than which nothing greater can be It's not that, that God, that no greater God can be conceived. It's that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So is he not already in his own category? If I miss something there, I'm not sure. Does it not still stand up to Cornelio's criticism? I mean, my view is, I think that's that's a nice idea. I suppose that, I, that um, thinking about what Anselm's doing, and certainly how we look at it in the 20th century, is that the Proslogian 3 kind of unpacks more of the idea of saying uh, nothing greater than can be conceived. So in a way, what we're doing is we're getting different types of existence. Uh, that's 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 that would be my take on it. So having to exist is more perfect than happening to exist. So yeah, that's fair. Whenever I hear the argument from Gornilo, everyone's like, "This is a, a superb argument." It deals with uh, it, and I kind of feel that it does. Really, that first first argument. I think the first argument stands up without the second one still, but maybe that's just right. me misunderstanding it somewhere. I'm not sure. Uh, ben, Paul, any thoughts from you? My students always come up with sort of Gornillo's criticism themselves because it feels like he's hit upon this this business of you just defining things into existence and that's illegitimate. You can't just do that. Um, but as to the question of whether or not you need the second, you know, Prosologian 3 in order to uh, overcome that, whether it's just on its own, whether it overcomes it in the first formulation, I guess... It's not clear what I think Anselm himself is kind of just unpacking the idea, isn't he, between Proslogion 2 and Proslogion 3. And you get this sense, I think, um, if you read Proslogion, of him actually, it's just the continuous meditation. So to try and how we've kind of artificially gone back to it and sort of packaged out the different parts may make it feel kind of more analytically separate than it certainly has occurred in Anselm's mind. So it's just which bit of the argument stands where. Is a, is a question that we're asking as kind of analytic philosophers trying to 
past like the different parts but it, it sort of feels when you read it more naturally it's all kind of hanging together and it is just this meditation i mean proslogic just means discourse or meditation he's just thinking about it and ideas are kind of tumbling out as he unpacks this idea of god it's a it's almost like a prayer rather than a philosophical argument and yeah, perhaps if you understand like that then the whole business of trying to work out does proslogian 2 is it immune from the does it need proslogian 3 and all the rest of it i don't know well, i would say perhaps is is a point of interest for us but it certainly wouldn't have concerned anselm i don't well, think. yeah yeah that's that's fair yeah i, I suppose yeah he i i understand he wrote it so i was just thinking in terms of the strength of proslogian 2 when we evaluate it i was just wondering because obviously we sometimes teach like that proslogian 2 this is the criticism but then this is a stronger argument but i still just yeah thought the first formulation still holds up i suppose ben yeah i i think that i agree with the stuff there about when kind of seen in isolation it it seems to lack something and then when you put it with other things it seems to put it into a wider context then you can see it as part of a much a much bigger kind of meditation on 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 god um I think the the thing that stands out to me because I think this ties in with with what Paul and Michael were both saying is that the there's something where I'm never sure whether it's a strength or a weakness of the argument because this when you think about that that than which nothing greater can be conceived it is an incredibly vague nebulous term um to the point where actually there's no demand on you to actually be able to conceive god you just accept that god is that of which nobody could conceive greater like nobody could come up with something greater than god in the same way that i the 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 way that it's always kind of like panned out in my head is when i think of the vastness of the universe i can't actually comprehend the vastness of the universe but i know that it's pretty it's big um, like I can't get my head around it, but nonetheless, my my conception of the universe is of this huge, expansive thing that I'll never get my head around, and there would I can't imagine that there would be anything physically bigger. Um, so, um, part of me thinks that sometimes that stands out as kind of a strength of the argument because it's not asking you to think of God. It's asking you to have this notion of God, which you can then build on, which you can then add to and supplement with these other arguments. But of course, it does fall into the trap of the other side of this, which is actually, if you're going to be basing your argument on a conception of God, and you're basically kind of saying, well, you don't actually have to have a conception of God. You just have to know that there's this thing which is so vast that you might not be able to get your head around it. Well, how useful is that as a premise in an argument that there is this thing that you can't imagine? Well, where do you go from there? <laughs> um, and then trying to and referring to it just as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, all right. It's not an island. It's not a, a podcast. It's not a shoe. It's not a whatever. But what is it? Well, it's a that, isn't it? It's a that than which nothing greater can be conceived. It's kind of like half and half. There is this kind of, it allows you to kind of explore this idea of God, but at the same time, it borders sometimes on a certain wooliness. Uh, I think that this is why, I think it was, it might be time to introduce the fact that, was it Schopenhauer who referred, referred to the ontological argument as a charming joke? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, 
you know, it's this it's this nice little you can imagine people with brandies around a fireplace going, I believe Mr. you know, Mr. Carruthers has come up with this marvelous little philosophical trick that shows <laughs> that God is never there. You know, that kind of you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it it does have the kind of flavour of a kind of nice parlour game, doesn't it? Or a nice yeah. puzzle to, to set to set yourself after after dinner time. Listen, let's leave things there and uh, we'll see you in the next part when we're going to see other versions of the ontological argument and some more criticisms and more chat. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, uh, just to remind you to check out uh, our website. If you go to my personal website, so just search for Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. Uh, if you look at the tabs, there's a tab at the top called Pod Schools, uh, and that will provide you with a link to Philosophy Get Schooled. You can find it on all other podcast servers. If you go to my website, though, you'll see a list, uh, a timetable of the topics we've recorded and the ones coming up. If you see anything that is coming up, please email me. My email address is on the website as well. If you've got any questions and comments, and we'd love to incorporate them into episodes. If you see something we've already recorded, still email me in uh, because uh, I'm sure we'll do some Q&As with people and I can fire your questions at some teachers. So you can ask Michael, Paul and Ben about the ontological argument and uh, prayers and desert islands and everything else. Okay, so we've introduced the ontological argument and we thought about Anselm, um, but there's another, well, there's a number of famous formulations of it, but another one that uh, a lot of the specifications talk about, if not all of them, is the formulation from uh, Descartes. So, Ben, do you want to start us off by thinking about uh, Descartes' formulation and the meditations? Mm, I mean, the the good thing is, is that conversation that we were just having at the end there about Anselm, about if you look at the argument, you've got to see it within the context of the whole book, otherwise you don't get the flow of it, you don't get the understanding. I think, and this may be where he's different to Malcolm, which is kind of very standalone, um, Descartes' argument also appears kind of in the middle of another text or in another text um, where there's a whole load of other arguments going on. Now, we don't have to do the whole history of the meditations and everything that's going on, but it's worth pointing out that when you hear this argument, he's arguing with an idea already that he has an idea of God and that this is an idea of God which hasn't been given to him by experience, for example. So it's not that um, experience in the sense of not necessarily in seeing God or hearing God, but this is not going to be an idea of God which he's just got because he's attended church or read the Bible or been in conversations. It's this idea that he is effectively born with the concept of God already innately branded onto his soul. So the concept of God is something which he doesn't get from outside of his mind by engaging with the world. It's something which is within him, um, which he draws upon in order to understand it. So he's got this kind of clear and distinct idea of things, which allows him to really understand their their um, truth. Because he's able, you know, when he isolates off an idea from all the other surrounding ideas, he gets this um, the actual truth of what the thing is. So you've got to imagine that's his starting point. He's he's starting with this idea that 
he already has the idea of God, and the idea of God is of a supremely perfect being. And this is um, not up for debate. This is, you know, this just is what the idea of God is. It is of a supremely perfect being. And um, as God is a supremely perfect being, that God would not lack any perfections. A supremely so something could be perfect in one respect, but it's not necessarily supremely perfect. So a supremely perfect being contains all perfections. Now, all you have to do, quite simply, is bung on the fact that existence is one of those perfections. That you couldn't have a supremely perfect being that lacked the perfection of existence. Something you can't say that something is perfect, um, but it lacks existence because then it's not perfect at all. In fact, it's nothing at all. So it again, it's just this neat little argument, um, probably supported quite a lot by the fact that he's argued a lot about God before this, and he's kind of tacking it on as a final nail in a, you know, of this argument, where he's adding at the end, look, we've got this idea of God. And as far as he's concerned, he's already kind of proven that God exists anyway. But if you were ever in doubt the God that we have got this idea of is supremely perfect. A supremely perfect being won't lack any perfection. Existence is a perfection, and therefore God must exist. And he uses all these kind of examples to go along with it, but, you know, like things like I can no longer... He talks about the idea of God's existence being part of God's essence, that you can you can't separate the existence from God any more than you could separate the three-sidedness from a triangle. That's how tightly bound these things are together. And as far as he's concerned, that's the only being that you can really do that with. There's no other being where its existence is necessarily linked to its essence, to its essential nature, what it actually is. Great. Thanks, Ben. So again, game over, right? That seems pretty much perfect. Uh, before we go into criticisms, Paul, Michael, anything you want to add to, to Descartes before we start thinking about existence? No, I think it was a good account. I think I'd, I can't think of anything I need to add in. There we are, Ben. That, that's that's pretty much perfect. No, yeah, you know, yeah, I keep my job for another year. There we go. No, <laughs> no greater explanation of Descartes' ontological arguments can be conceived. Okay, then. So let's move on then to. A kind of a point that I suppose has been hanging in the background throughout all of our discussions so far, uh, made most famously by Immanuel Kant, um, who, of course, um, you know, was a religious believer, one of the great titans of Western philosophy, but he didn't have much time for the ontological argument. And so he particularly talks a lot about existence, which is there not just in Descartes, but also in Anselm. So who wants to explain what's going on with, with Kant then? Paul? Oh, thank you very much. Well, um, obviously, I, I feel a bit intimidated coming up after the, the peerless explanation of Descartes from Ben there. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll just have to sort of flail around and see what happens, but hopefully I can give some account of Kant. Just before I go on to the main uh, uh, objection that Kant wants to lay, uh, level at the ontological argument, the one he thinks really does put the nail in the coffin of it all, um, it's just what he he has a sort of another objection to it um, too, which is just to say, and this is one that I think is quite intuitive as well, which is just to say, take Descartes. Um, he's saying, well, look, 
you know, if you've got a triangle, then it must have three sides, must have you know, three internal angles and all the rest of it. If there is a mountain, then it must have a valley attached to it and all the rest of it. But Kant says, well, of course, there's nothing, and, and says Descartes, it's a contradiction to, to deny that. But Kant says, well, actually, you, if, if there is a triangle, then, of course, it is a contradiction to deny uh, that it has three internal angles adding up to 180 degrees. But what isn't a contradiction is just to deny the whole thing. Maybe, maybe there are no triangles at all. And that, that doesn't involve you in a contradiction. Now, it might be false, but it's not contradictory. It's not a logical contradiction. So, um, you know, if there are dragons, then they must be fire-breathing, I guess. But maybe there aren't any dragons. If there's a unicorn, then it must have one horn, but maybe there aren't any unicorns. So just merely saying, if something matches this definition, then it must exist, doesn't actually prove that there is something that does match the definition. You can you can reject the definition, the whole the whole lot. If you if you um, accept the definition, then you have to accept what we're going to learn to call the predicates or the properties, the things that that thing has. So with the triangle, if you accept that there is a triangle, then you must accept the properties of that go with being a triangle. But if you reject the whole thing, you don't have to uh, accept the properties of the thing. And just to give us a bit more, uh, chuck a little bit of jargon at this to help us understand the second objection that, that Kant makes. When we're talking about yeah, thing, yeah, when we're talking about something and using sentences to describe something, we often refer to the subject of the sentence uh, and the predicate of the sentence. And the subject is just whatever the, the sentence is about. And then the predicate is all of those words that tell you about or qualify, um, tell you the, the properties or qualities uh, of the subject itself. So with the triangle example, we've had, you know, a triangle has three sides. Well, three sides are um, predicates of a triangle. And what Kant wants to attack is the view that existence can function as a genuine predicate or something that tells you properties of things. And he does that by um, getting you to do a little thought experiment. So he says, let's just try and imagine that you've got a pile of you know, 100 um, talas, you know, which are coins, gold coins of, of the time that he was using. So we could imagine, I don't know, can anyone imagine 100 pounds anymore? <laughs> I don't know if in these days of financial crisis, that's seemingly, I don't know what, I don't know what sort of money to, to use here. Perhaps money's not the best thing to talk about. But anyway, Kant, in his perhaps more slightly financially stable times, was able to refer to 100 um, talas and people to know what they what he meant by that. But just, just picture those in your mind. They're all sort of gold and shiny and clinky and you know, they've got all this, you know, the properties that a pile of gold coins has. And then he says to, yourself, says to you, well, why don't you try and imagine, now you add another predicate, another property to that, which is that they exist. And when you do this, you imagine, think to yourself, well, what, what, what have I added there to my mental picture? How has that been altered or changed or qualified in any way? And he says, when you, when you reflect on it, it hasn't added anything to the concept. So it can't function as a proper predicate, which, of course, raises the question, well, what does, you know, actually, what role does that word exist or play in a sentence if it doesn't function as a predicate? Because obviously we do say things like God exists and, um, you know, yeah, we use it all the time uh, in sentences. But but what does it actually do? 
And this is where actually sort of later philosophers have kind of dragged out the implications of what Kant's talking about. Um, I'm particularly fond um, of a little symposium that um, Neil and Moore uh, wrote about, uh, entitled Is Existence a Predicate? In which they give the example just to show that uh, it doesn't function like a predicate of um, some tame tigers. If you imagine the, the subject of the, of the predicate of, of the sentence is some tame tigers, and it turns out they don't growl. Some tame tigers do not growl. So if the subject of that is some tame tigers, the predicate is do not growl. So if you take that, that's a perfectly good sentence, and the predicate's done its job of telling us something about the subject, which is what predicates are supposed to do. If you flip out um, do not growl, you could chuck in some tame tigers do not exist. And what seems to have happened there is a bit weird, because if you think about it, you've said some tame tigers, and then you said that they don't exist. So you've got the idea that there is something that exists, and then you've just denied that. So you've entailed a contradiction with yourself. You've just contradicted yourself and got a meaningless sentence. It doesn't get any better if you get rid of the negation and just say some tame tigers exist, because then you've just repeated the same information. Some tame tigers tells you just that there are some in the world, there are such things that are tame tigers. And so what we then sort of think about, and and Moore and Neil aren't the only people to think about this, Frege, Russell, pretty much everybody points out that in fact what existence is doing here in sentences is just enumerating. It's just saying there is one or at least one um, of these things in the world. It doesn't tell you anything at all about the properties of that thing. So back to Descartes, back to Anselm, they're trying to say that this thing, existence, is a quality or a property that God has, which adds something to our concept of God, namely that God exists. But in fact, existence does not function as a predicate at all. It functions differently. It functions to enumerate. And therefore, it is illegitimate to claim that existence is a predicate. So Descartes certainly is wrong, and Anselm's looking a bit shaky, although we might be able to defend him in a minute. Great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Michael, do you want to come in on that? Uh, I might might as well play the part of the fool again, I suppose. Um, Well, I I don't know my own thoughts on this, but to me, if someone turned around and said, there is this concept, and also it exists, to me that would add to my understanding. If you think of the thought experiment of the person who knows everything there is to know about red and knows all the wavelengths and all the all the factual data that you need to know about red um, but has never seen the colour red before, when she sees the colour red for the first time, it does add to her understanding, I think. I've always felt, and I don't know why, but I always feel like if you define a concept and you go, oh, it exists, I don't know what information I'm getting, but I feel some information I'm, I'm getting. If you go, oh, there's this alien who looks like this looks like that and by the way he exists i go oh okay uh that does give me information but i don't know whether i'm just being mistaken here i i genuinely don't know so i'm happy to play the fool so you can correct me uh if i'm wrong here uh ben paul bed why don't you come in yeah well i agree because i go through moments of this like i was saying before where i don't know whether it's a strength or a weakness with the last argument i think with this every so often i hear can'ts criticism and i go yeah that's spot on that nails it and then other times i hear it and i go no if i'm imagining a certain number of coins and then i'm imagining a certain number of coins that exist i am learning about certain properties of something that um 
that weren't true of the one that is true of the other. Um, that one, the one is a, a conceptual bunch of coins, and the other one is almost in an Anselmi sort of way, a conceptual bunch of coins that also happen to be real coins actually in the world. There's something that matches them in the world. And I think that's where the stuff, I think that that the reason why I think I'm, I am kind of more drawn towards what Kant's saying eventually is precisely because of that kind of Frager, Russell, Moore analysis later on. Um, to just give like another, the example from, from Frager, I think, uh, not on the ontological argument, but on this idea of, the notion of exists being a quantifier, this idea that if you have like five brown horses, all of the horses are brown, but not all the horses are five. Those have different linguistic functions and logical functions. Like if you think about the job that they do. And so I think what you can add to what Kant's saying to give it the twist, which makes it stronger, is kind of like bolt on. The stuff that people like Russell and Frager are saying is that you are learning something about the coins, maybe, uh, in a way, but not a predicate in the idea of the function of describing a feature of the coins, but so much uh, as learning the quantity of the coins. And that is that is new information, but it's not a predicate in the sense of pointing out a property of the coins. So it's a, um, like I say, with that, that horses thing, when you tell me that the horses are brown, you tell me a feature of the horses. When you tell me that there are five horses, you tell me how many of them there are. And so the argument depends upon moving back and forth invalidly between talking about qualities of things and quantities of things and treating quantities as if they're qualities and they're not. So I think it kind of needs a bit of bolstering with maybe having not read the, the Kant stuff in years and so not able to, to comment fully, it, if it's kind of bolstered a bit with that kind of analytic stuff from later on, I think it strengthens it. Uh, thanks, Ben. Paul? And of course, well, that, that's kind of vital. If, if The difference between um, sort of quantity versus qualifying uh, quality stuff, because actually to the argument, what's trying to be shown is that, that there is a God that exists in the world and if you can do that if you can unpack that as a quality that god must have then you've made that link from the word to the world haven't you? you've managed to sort of come up with a statement just through unpacking um the idea of god which has shown us that one of these things exists in the world but if existence is actually just a quantifier the thing that says there is one in the world then you can't use it as a you can't use it as a quality to say there is one in the world, and that means that this the status this business of is there something in the world that corresponds to this conception of a being now in which nothing greater can be conceived can't be answered just by looking at at the concept and saying existence is a predicate of that. So it's kind of it's massively important to the if this is this is why it's the nail in the coffin if it can be hammered in if he's owning that's it but it does need i think you're right it does need sharpening and strengthening i think the later analytic philosophers do give us in my view anyway um the tools to knock the nail into the coffin okay so let's thinking about later philosophers there's uh someone we've already mentioned norman malcolm and he has another go 
in the midpoint in the 20th century reflecting on Anselm. So shall we uh, cover what Norman Malcolm says? Michael, why don't you have a go at this? Yes, good. So we've had two uh, faultless, perfect explanations. So this is where I give a faulty explanation and the podcast just disappears out of existence. So that's good. (laughs) So um, Norman Malcolm then. Uh, The starting point, you've got two options. Either God exists or does not. Nice and straightforward. That's good so far. Um, So in addition to that, God uh, cannot come in or out of existence. So um, it would be impossible for God to not exist at one point and exist at another. So um, either that leads to number three, if God exists, he cannot cease to exist. So basically, if he existed at one point, he exists now or he hasn't existed at all. So if God then exists, his existence is uh, necessary. So it doesn't rely on anything else for its existence. He has to exist. So. If God does not exist, existence is impossible. So I suppose I should stop at this point and explain those two. Uh, so if God uh, if God exists, his existence is necessary. If God does not exist, his existence is impossible. So those are your two binary options. You've got either a God with necessary existence, so one that has to exist, or one that's impossible to exist. You can't have a God just springing out of nowhere. So God's existence is necessary. Uh, so therefore, God's existence is either necessary or impossible. So you've gone from a binary of either God exists or does not to God exists and is necessary, or God is impossible. So God is uh, is is possible according to Malcolm because it's not self contradictory. So if you think about self contradictory statements, um, so something simple like this statement is false. It can't. It does. We can't make sense of that because if the statement is false, then it's true. If the statement is true, then it's false. That statement can't really be a real statement. So there's nothing in the in the definition of God that is contradictory. Um, so there's nothing that makes it impossible for God to exist. So you can rule out that God is impossible. So all you're left with is the fact that God's God is necessary and therefore exists. I think I got through it. Does that make sense? Do I need to go back over any of that? Faultless. Faultless as well. Um, So, again, game over. Sounds great, doesn't it? Um, But surely there's some criticisms of of Malcolm. Ben, Paul, any thoughts from you? Yeah. um, I mean, the the big one which stands out here, what what Malcolm's using here is um, a very particular kind of logic. He's using the logic of, Possibility, impossibility, and necessity. Uh, so he's using modal logic, um, and and modal logic is. I mention this because it's not only central to the argument, but also for those people doing the A level, um, the AQAA level. This idea of modal logic crops up elsewhere. It crops up in conceivability arguments in philosophy of mind, for example. And one of the things where, if you're looking at people like David Chalmers, who who has a, a tendency to use these kind of modal logic, impossible world sort of arguments about things, about what's possible and impossible and necessary and so on. There is this sort of reaction from certain quarters in the in the philosophy community where the reaction is kind of like when a, a quantum physicist hears somebody who isn't a quantum physicist talking about quantum physics. They kind of like this eye roll of, no, no, we don't say that. No, you've misunderstood. <laughs> like, and, and like with modal logic, this idea of, aha, well, things are either necessary or impossible or possible, and they're possible if they're possible in one, you know, 
at least one possible world and stuff. And the people who just go, yeah, that's just logic. That's just a way of understanding logic. And the people who go, no, that has really serious implications for what we can say about this real here and now world. Um, the Patricia Churchlands of this world kind of roll their eyes and just go, this is silly, navel-gazing nonsense. And and the reason is, I think, that it's because there's a, a conflict here, or not a conflict, a conflation, between two ways of thinking about necessity and possibility and impossibility. Um, if I was to say that the existence of God is possible, then according to this logic, it basically just means that it's not impossible. That's all it means, really. It just means it's not impossible. Um, nor is it, in order to be necessary, it would have to be possible. But it's kind of like a midpoint between the two. It's not necessary. It doesn't have to be the case. But it's not impossible. It's not that it would never be the case. It, it could be one or the other. It's got this kind of bivalent sort of could be true, could be false structure to it. And that can be true of statements and statements about God and statements about God's existence. Because there's a difference between statements having that structure and actual beings having that structure. So I'm there's nothing contradictory in saying it is possible that God exists and then following it up in logical sense. It's not impossible that God exists, but saying because of the way that the universe is, there is no way an infinite transcendent being that is outside of space and time could exist. If the nature of existence is by its very nature confined to space and time, then to say that it is possible that something could transcend that, while in logical terms, you might say, well, it's not impossible, in actual real world terms, it would be. And so this conflation between talking about logical necessity, what must be the case, because that's what the terms mean when you look at the logic, and ontological necessity, that there is a being which must exist and cannot go out of existence are two completely different sets of claims. So those terms like possible and impossible and necessary can be equivocated and, you know, in an argument so that you move seamlessly from getting somebody to agree with what God would be like were there to be a God. And then all of a sudden in your conclusion, oh, look, God exists necessarily. And it's that kind of idea. And like I say, like thinking about the rest of the spec, it's worth seeing where that does sometimes happen. Oh, I can conceive of this thing. It's not impossible. Therefore, that must say something about reality. And actually, maybe the physics just doesn't allow it. Maybe just the metaphysics doesn't allow it. Um, and that's kind of the, the major problem, I think, with Malcolm's argument. Great. Thanks, Ben. Paul, Michael, you want to come in? Um, yeah, I think for OCR as well, we do the nature of God. And I think even if you accept up to that point where you go, God is not self-contradictory, when you look at the nature of God, it's perfectly possible for God to be self-contradictory. If you've got an omnipotent and omnibenevolent being, then can God do bad things? You know, it, so I don't think it's as simple as God is not a contradictory idea because there are many, many problems with even just those. You, are, you either say the qualities of God when you take it as a whole are contradictory, but even 
uh, omnipotence can be a contradictory idea. You know, you've got those. I know there's obviously refutations to that, but, you know, can God create a stone too heavy for himself to lift and lift it? Can we even define noses up for debate? So even if you accept the logic up until that point, you've still got a problem with the idea of God not being self-contradictory. Great. Thanks, Michael. I mean, here's here's my take on on Malcolm. Uh, I mean, I think Ben gets it right, but there's a kind of there's a simple takedown as well. Norman Malcolm's argument, the article is is a great article, but basically it comes down to this. I think he proves that if God exists, then he exists necessarily. But so much is built into that if, into that antecedent. It's all about if God exists, right? So I think I agree with Malcolm that if God exists, he exists necessarily. But I just don't know whether God exists or not. So. So at least it's a proof of one thing. It's a proof of the nature of God if he exists. And it's a nice little proof, but, you know. And anyway. I think even the fool accepts that. That's the weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> to go back to Anselm, the fool, the fool is in full agreement of that. And we've we've maybe just spent uh, the last, you know, 1,500 years maybe wasting our time a little bit because we're all in agreement. <laughs> but, but it's been a fun <laughs> pile again, though, hasn't it, Ben? Um, yes. <laughs> So can I ask you, the, the three of you, a different question. So when we started off, after Ben's introduction, Paul introduced us to Anselm, and he said, you know, I always like to to open this and, and show to my students I'm going to prove God exists. I imagine him walking into the classroom with a magician's cape on and a big top hat and a and a big magic wand, right, standing in front of his students. I'm just wondering, for, for the three of you, I, I mean, do your students like this argument? Do they struggle with any part of it? I mean, what do they think by the end? Well. I've got to say mine um, tend to – so it's quite interesting. They sort of get, you get a bit of a split uh, of opinion about it. You get, there's, there's definitely an, an intellectual satisfaction in just seeing the steps and just kind of unpacking the different premises and reaching the conclusion and then seeing, well, if these are true, then God must exist. But, of course, you know, as we've just already said, there's a big if. But what I found is that some students who already have – an idea of God which they believe in, they do find this quite. And I think this is this is taking it back to Anselm, um, who is doing precisely this. They enjoy that process of kind of thinking about the implications of what that concept might mean, and seeing how this can almost like work as a kind of an affirmation of what they they actually already believe, but giving it a kind of really nice intellectual grounding. And there's kind of real satisfaction to it. Although actually there's also the case that some of my students who are from a religious background do see it as just a kind of conjuring trick and almost are suspicious of it because it tries to put belief in God on a rigorous logical footing. Um, So it it meets with mixed receptions. Unfortunately, nobody has ever fallen entirely for my conjuring tricks. I'm not as persuasive as Malcolm or Anselm or or Descartes or any any of the other ones. Uh, No one's left my lessons convinced that there definitely is beyond a shadow of a God, a God that exists on the grounds of the ontological argument. But I do think they all enjoy it, all of them, from whatever perspective. And it's a nice contrast to the um, a posteriori arguments, the design argument and the cosmological argument, because it just comes from you know a very different, um, you know, as, as Ben said at the start, it comes from a very different place. And that's just enjoyable to kind of explore and see how different forms of philosophy, philosophizing can, can be done. So one's obviously, yeah, the a posteriori arguments for God sort of begin at a kind of wander at the world and sort of unpacking that and, and linking it back to God. And this one's this much more um, just wandering at the word, isn't it? Just taking in, you know, think about 
what words mean and their implication, this sort of quiet meditation in one's own study, which is obviously the tradition of, of Anselm and Descartes. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a really nice view into the way that philosophy can work. Great. Uh, Michael, Ben, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, some, <laughs> I have used this in uh, probably slightly uh, unfair ways. Uh, when pe- kids in year eight or nine go, yeah, there's no proof of God. And then I'll give them a quick rundown of the ontological argument. And I'll go, so it's just true. Uh, and then they'll go, but that's not, uh, I said you'll have to find out at A-level. Uh, but I think just to pick up on what Paul was saying in comparison to the cosmological and teleological, particularly the teleological argument, you introduce it and it's very hard to, to do philosophy when you do the teleological argument because at f- they first think, well, evolution, right? Evolution's explained this. We don't, we, you know, I don't need to engage with this argument. You really have to kind of try and persuade them there is an argument to be had. Whereas with the ontological argument, the problems are not as clear and they really have to kind of engage and think about it. And I think it is quite useful for that to, to get them to really, really have to dig deep and, and try hard to understand the objections because it feels unsatisfactory, but they find it hard to identify those problems until you kind of guide them through it. And I think that I think that's what's enjoyable about the ontological argument is you can genuinely get a bit of philosophy done rather than them already having their objections and you're kind of mm-hmm. hold back their objections until you get to the evaluation lesson. Um, so that's quite good. Great, thanks, Ben. Any thoughts from you? I can kind of <laughs> kind of echo what's already been said to some extent. I think that, that I don't think I've ever taught it and had somebody come out who was convinced by it. And I think that would be the measure, wouldn't it? It would be not the the person who already believes, but the person who doesn't believe and then comes out and goes, "Yeah, I can't, I can't do anything about it." I think that the you know I, I have to now accept that God exists. I think the the thing that's kind of interesting. Um, when I do see students talking about it, is it's one of those arguments which hints at something which I don't have any huge sort of psychological uh, research into or, or any great um, belief that this is like a real kind of like faculty of the mind or anything like that. But I think when you're studying philosophy, every so often you hear an argument and somebody takes you through it and they go, do you understand it? And you go, yeah. And you go, do you what do you think of it? You know, do you agree? And you just go, nope. And they go, why? And you go, don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but something ain't sitting right. I feel like somebody's somebody's tricking me. Somebody's playing a joke on me. They've, there's going to be something in here where you've just like, like some sort of playground trick where you ask your mate a couple of questions and they answer and you kind of go, oh, you've just agreed to this stupid thing. And it's, but this is kind of like an argument for the existence of God. Somebody's gone, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this? Do you agree with this? Oh, God must exist then. And rather than going, you're right, you know, you know, great God in boots and all that business as Bertrand Russell was <laughs> kind of when he felt he'd worked it out. It's not actually that. You kind of sit there going, no, there's something wrong here. And I think that it's nice to kind of take that instinct that people have when they hear it and say, there's two ways we've got to approach this. The one is there might be something about you listening to this and you've sussed that there's a trick going on here. You've sussed that some dodgy logic is in there somewhere. And our job is to go through with this real fine tooth comb and find where the error is. We can do some kind of philosophical detective work to work out where it's gone wrong. Or the other approach is maybe we've got to take a step back and maybe look at our own attitude towards the argument. Is it because it's convinced you something has convinced you of something or, or trying to convince you of something that you don't like and that you don't want to accept? 
because actually that could also be what's going on. Now, I think with the ontological argument, I think that it it is because there's some dodgy logic in there and it doesn't actually take you where it wants to. It can be very enlightening in some respects, but it's I for me, it's not a valid and sound argument. I don't think it proves anything. But to give them the opportunity to do that detective worth, but also say, if this wasn't about God, would you have the same feeling? Is it is this you kicking back because somebody's just proven God exists to you and you're a bit uncomfortable with that fact now? Because that's quite a disturbing thing to find out that God exists. It's as disturbing to find out that he doesn't for religious believers. Right. So it's kind of everything's changed now. Are you uncomfortable? And and we should do that with a lot of arguments that in moral philosophy, political philosophy, epistemology, if something isn't sitting right, it's either because something's gone on under the surface and you haven't noticed it and you need to go back, or maybe it's you and you've got to have a think about whether you need to adjust your ideas instead. Great. Uh, thanks, uh, all three of you, for those uh, reflections. Um, perhaps we should draw things to, to a close there um, and thank all of our guests for all of their thoughts and comments uh michael thanks very much for coming on again uh, thanks for having me again thank you very much uh, and paul thanks to you as well uh, thank you it's a real pleasure um talking about that it's, I, I, like you actually simon I'm, i've got fond recollections of the ontological argument at king edward's school um and going through precisely these these arguments with richard williams who was i think um, my teacher then so nostalgia for me trip down memory lane and uh, ben thanks very much for coming on again no, thank you. I hate the ontological argument, but I'm glad that I was here. <laughs> <laughs> An argument than which no uh, greater can be conceived not, I think. Uh, well, thank you all for you, and thanks to you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Gets Schooled. I hope you enjoyed the ontological argument more than Ben did. Uh, and all being well, you'll be listening again to one of our episodes soon. 